Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 183. So glad you could join me. Abby E. Murray is here. She's our main guest tonight. I've been excited for this one for a long time. It's going to be a great episode. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, write reviews on iTunes and Spotify and anything else, uh, wherever else this is. You're listening to this right now. Leave some kind of feedback because that's how poetry spreads around the internet, and that's what we're always trying to do. Now, um, you might be surprised to see me at the office based on um, last week's uh, Critique of the Week. I've been shoveling for six hours today and finally got to the end of my driveway. I'm the tiredest and most sore I've ever been, I think, maybe since, like, the brief little bit of period where I did football in high school. Um, other than that, I've never been this sore or tired, I don't think. And um, so hopefully it'll be a good episode anyway. Um, now, before we begin, we should always start with our Poets Respond poet. And uh, today's uh, Sunday's poet can't be here. She's flying on a plane back from a uh, protest, actually, um, or a... Uh, an event in support of uh, Ukraine. Julia Kochinsky Dasbach had one year later, a year ago, she had that erasure poem, Mir in Ukraine. And now she comes back with a villanelle one year later, one year into the war. And um, Julia says, let me put this on the screen. Um, Julia says, um, there. Um, it's the week of the one year anniversary of Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine. Today, February 21st, is exactly a year since Putin's heinous speech foreshadowed the invasion with his um, perversion of history, staking claim to a sovereign nation and people. It's a year since I coped with the inevitability of this war by transforming his speech into an erasure published here, too. This war in my birthplace has continued to be a daily reality of my life, just as it has for most of those in the Ukrainian diaspora. But for many other Americans, this war has moved into a periphery are completely out of view. According to recent polls, a little less than half of Americans support continued military aid, with a third outright against it, and the rest apathetic to U.S. involvement. Inspired by Jean de Brault's masterful villanelle civilian from her forthcoming book, Civilians, I was moved to write one too, the refrains bouncing and echoing in my head until I got them down on paper. This poem is a plea for continued U.S. as well as global support and vigilance for refusal to look away from the war, for action. And if you are able, please consider contributing to an aid organization that helps those who are in Ukraine and refugees trying to flee. I recommend Ukraine Trust Chain, an all-volunteer-run nonprofit started by Ukrainian immigrants in the U.S. They work with local volunteers on the ground, going directly into areas hard to reach by larger international organizations. Trust Chain provides urgent food, medical supplies, and transportation to safer regions. So that was her note. I want to read the whole thing because uh, she couldn't be here, of course, so we want to get all that out. Julia is going to be the guest on the Rattlecast. I think the date was May 1st, maybe, or April? No, April 17th. So she's going to be here again to do a full episode with her new book. But here she is reading this Villanelle, just a wonderful, and I love the way that this, um, this could be an anti-war poem for any time in any war, too. So it's really, it really has a timeless quality to it. Here's Julia Kolchinsky Dasbach's uh, One Year Later. One year later, 
It's easy to look away from war when your wallet's empty and sink is full, when the land and people aren't yours, when your children scream for more of you, when your body's pulled. It's easy to look away from war. The soil across the water to Earth's core brims blood, but look, the sunflowers still bloom when the land and people aren't yours. So, You focus on the daily chores, dig out a trench of laundry, linens, wools. It's easy to look away from war, with a dog barking, mailman at the door. Your children speak a stranger's tongue at school. The land and people aren't yours. How does a house become a shore no news can reach? Are we that cruel? Or is it just that easy? To look away from war when the land and people aren't yours. And once again, that was Julia Kolchinsky Dausbach reading one year later, um, one year into the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest now, Abby E. Murray. So sit tight, and uh, I will be right back with Abby. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, like I said, today's guest is Abby E. Murray, originally from North or from the Pacific Northwest. Abby E. Murray has moved around the country and taught writing in Colorado, Georgia, Alaska, New York, and Washington, where she served as the 2019 to 2021 Poet Laureate for the city of Tacoma. Her first book, Helen Farewell, which I have right here, uh, won the 2019 Perugia Press Prize and was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award. Previous chapbooks include How to Be Married, After a Rock, from Finishing Line Press, Quick Draw, Poems from a Soldier's Wife, from Finishing Line Press as well, and Me and Coyote, from Lost Horse Books. Uh, you can find all of her work at abbyemurray.com, and here she is, Abby E. Murray. Hey, Abby, how you doing? Hello, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, it's just a pleasure to have you. You're one of those poets that we've we've published so many times. I was looking it up, it's actually 13 times in Poets Respond, um, which really? is not quite the record, but very close. And, um, and wow. you know, everybody just loves your work. And one of the most popular poems is that, um, uh, what was it called? Taking My Daughter to the War Protest or something like yeah, that, whatever the title was. Yeah. I think that was the first one with uh, Poets Respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that was a good, oh, no, it wasn't a war protest. I think it was a Trump protest, I think maybe. Right. That was the women's. That was the, the women's, women's march. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's really cool to have you. Do you want to set up by reading a poem? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to start with a poem uh, called "The War Tramples Us." Um, it's on page 13 in Hail and Farewell, and I wrote this after um, uh, living in Alaska. I lived in a duplex. Um, And this was um, what happened um, to my neighbor. The war tramples us. Upstairs, my neighbor reads about carbon monoxide. We communicate without language at the shared mailbox where we wait for letters shipped in crates from Iraq. When I say nothing to her, she says nothing back. The floorboards groan when she rocks her two boys into a deep sleep, an ocean of night. She floats to the garage, curls up on the back seat of her Jeep, and tracks the brown moths crawling across fluorescent lights. They drop 
like folded paper. Later, a man in fire gear delivers her to my porch. He says we should evacuate. She apologizes, her voice the hollow boom of babies carried off in an ambulance. What can I do? I lean against the door frame, smelling poison. And that was The War Trambles Us, again from Hail and Farewell, Abby Murray's first full-length book um, from Perugia Press. Um, and so the, the book is really a fascinating read because it's something that we don't see a lot um, in poetry. Like it feels like like military life is something totally separate from sort of literary life. There's so There are a few, a handful of poets, you know, Brian Turner and people like that writing about their experiences in war. Um, you know, a few others who've been like Bill Gloss, who've been on the podcast, a Vietnam veteran who writes about that. Um, and, and so there are a few poets, but there, it's not, it's a thing that's like, like reading about what goes on as a, the wife of somebody in the military was so interesting because it's just something that's not spoken of very often. Um, how, how did that come to be? And, and, and sort of the, and of course, the description of the book describes the contrast between you as a pacifist having married somebody who's a soldier. Um, how did that come to be? And, and what was it like, like experiencing that for the first time? Was it something you had any familiarity with at all? Um, it kind of was in that um, as I would say, like as a high schooler, that's kind of when I started writing poetry, uh, when so many of us do. Um, I was uh, pretty obnoxiously and ignorantly pacifist, um, as you would expect a teenager to to be. Um, and uh, when I went away to college, I started learning a little bit more about myself um, and about our country's history. And that was where I met Tom. And uh, he was in ROTC, so he was already army bound, um, the war in Iraq, uh, you know, every day was just more and more imminent. And, um, uh, we actually met, uh, because we were arguing a lot, um, on campus and, uh, he just kept calling back and wanting to get together more, which was ridiculous to me. So, um, we've always been, um, in conflict. We've always been a contrast. Um, we're definitely not one of those, um, couples where, you know, I'm not married to a poet. I don't think I could be married to a poet. They would drive me crazy. Um, but uh, the military, we're finding out the military and the literary life have a lot of similarities. But yeah, you're right. They, you know, on the Venn diagram, I think of of our culture, they don't usually um, come in contact with each other very often. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So what similarities do they have in common between, you know, military life and, and literary life? Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the hierarchy mm-hmm. of, uh, military is very familiar, I think, to anyone who's, um, especially in the literary, like the publishing business, uh, which I think is, you know, just has such a completely different feel from the actual creation and artistic side, mm-hmm. um, of the poetry world. But those hierarchies, um, are kind of the same and, yeah, the second the second thing that comes to mind is that there's also um, shame and pride are both, hmm. you know, kind of at the center of of these two forms of service. So, um, yeah, they actually have a lot in common. Once you, once you, if you have time to sit down and think about it, they they have a lot in common. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because shame and pride do come so much into poetry. I mean, I I've gotten over this, but I used to if I was like sitting next to somebody on a plane, 
and they would say, what do you do for a living? I'd be like, oh, I um, edit a magazine. And they're like, oh, what kind of magazine? And I'm like, oh, a literary magazine. And they're like, oh, what kind of literary magazine? And I'm like, oh, it's poetry. And then they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like a weird sort of like, I don't know what to say to, to this guy next to me kind of experience. Right. And, and I, I've gotten over that. And now, like, if you approach it the right way, I think people are curious and interested and it works a lot better than um, yeah. being timid about it. But, um, <laughs> but it is. It's like we have so much pride in our poems, but then there's this way that I don't know, I guess society doesn't respect it or something like that. And and so we have a mm-hmm. shame too. Is that what you mean by the shame? I, yeah. I mean that um, plus um, also like that so much of poetry, I think is um, a way of understanding shame, at least with um, some of my writing and, or maybe it's just my writing lately kind of um, processing shame and understanding it um, more clearly. I just, I just turned 40 and I'm, this is like, I feel like I should be having my midlife crisis um, right now. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of reflecting and thinking um, and processing shame and wondering about regret. And I think that shame plays a part in a lot of really powerful poems that I love mm-hmm. and a lot of poets' lives who I love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that we you know don't look at a lot directly. And then so it's the po- the lens of poetry becomes a great way of exploring it. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk more in a minute, but let's hear another poem first. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to read Gwen Stefani knows how to get everything I want. Um, I received a magazine in the mail on mistake uh, when I was a PhD student. I lived up in upstate New York um, and that was where I wrote about this happening. Gwen Stefani knows how to get everything I want. It takes a misdelivered Cosmo to finally understand what I want and how to get it. Gwen Stefani tells the truth on page 89. We believe in Gwen because her apron of chain link stars sparkles over a black bustier. Star spangled bondage, says an editor. She slouches, holds the heel of her right white Louboutin in one hand as if to say, Congress respects my body. As if to say, Rifles aren't worth shooting. This is what I want, and Gwen is here to deliver. When she slips into a red sport coat and jeans, she comes in loud and clear. Grant proposals that write themselves, cartons of baby formula sold from unlocked shelves at CVS, eight days of rain over California. Because Gwen knows how to get everything I want, she can afford to be an optimist. Pharrell is rad. Her mom is rad. The whole world is rad. I agree, Gwen. I do. And I'd be giddy too in that baby blue jacket. It's faux bullet spikes screaming peace talks and pacifism, bubblegum fingernails that tell me soldiers who drop my writing class are only on vacation. She pulls her Union Jack sunglasses down with one finger. This means Ruth Stone never died, but went into hiding. It means the grocery store lobsters have escaped. It means I can refinance. Gwen steps into a pair of fishnets as if to say the 2nd Infantry Division won't return to Iraq, as if to say minky whales are singing on the Japanese coast. That was another poem from uh, Hail and Farewell. That was a Gwen Stefani knows how to get everything I want. (laughs) Another great poem and great artwork too on this. Um, I, I've, I think I've seen that before. Is it just because I've seen 
um, your book cover before, or is that something that that was a famous sculpture like post nine eleven or something like that? It is, yeah. I don't think it's on display right now, but I think it's at is it St. John's? It's in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, the artist is Meredith Bergman, um, and she's made um, several sculptures that are. I think really recognizable when you look them up. Yeah. Online. Yeah. I've definitely seen it before and I just couldn't remember. Um, how hard was it? That's one of the things that, that I don't know. People don't really understand. How hard was it to get the permission to use that as the cover? Was it, was she excited to do the book or was it difficult? She was, um, she was excited and she was wonderful to work with, but you would have to ask Becky. Um, Rebecca Allender is the editor of Perugia and is just wonderful to work with. I still consider being the Tacoma Poet Laureate and having this book, Hail and Farewell um, at Perugia. These were like the two best things to ever happen mm-hmm. to me as a poet. And um, But she found uh, the cover after having conversations with me about kind of what I was envisioning. And um, we looked at a couple of different artists and she and she reached out and she, she has good pull. I mean, she publishes beautiful books. So yeah, yeah, yeah. she definitely does. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so what, was it you that picked that, that image or was it her? I think it was her that found that sculptor. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at, um, her different collections mm-hmm. of work. And this one just really stands out. Um, especially cause I mean, this, this book is really looking at the impact mm-hmm. of war. Um, something that I think I've always been, um, fascinated with at least for the past 20 years um since i've been with tom looking at um the the reaching impact of war i think we always think the battle story Mm -hmm. um and the combat veteran and we don't often see or explore you know those reaching impacts of war that don't really go away Mm -hmm. um and this this image i mean it quite it quite literally is impact um with things colliding yeah, for for those just listening, I should have said um, the image that we're looking at here. It's a sculpture. It's a nude of a woman who has her hands up, kind of over her face, almost, and she's blocking two airplanes. Um, and sort of her arms are kind of like towers that sort of make you think about um, the twin towers on nine eleven, as if she's blocking them. Um, but it's sort of a serene expression too, which is really interesting and moving. So, anyway, it's the cover of um, Hail and Farewell. Um, earlier, you mentioned that that you and your husband Tom have like disagreements, and that was sort of the basis of your relationship. What have you? I'm curious. What have you learned in the process of that from each other? Have you like sort of moved more toward a unified thing, or are you always um, in complete disagreement about that? <laughs> I think it depends on what time of year you ask <laughs> us. Um, I'm <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Tom might be watching this. So I want to say we're actually, we're getting ready to move. Um, I'm in DC right now and he's actually in Washington state already. He started his new assignment out of JBLM there. Um, And uh, we, I think, you know, I would, as you were asking the question, I was like, I would really like to say that Tom and I, you know, have learned so much and we've become (laughs) this like, you know, exquisitely tolerant couple when really like, um, you know, Tom is my buddy and Tom is my confidant and I trust Tom, but at the same time, I have always disagreed with Tom and I think I'm always going to, Mm -hmm. um, and he's always disagreed with me. He has never understood. I mean, 
a lot of what I do too. And I think a lot of people are just like, oh, Abby, you know, she clearly doesn't understand what Tom does. You know, she has weird hair and um, tattoos and says fuck all the time. And like, you know, so she doesn't understand what it's like to be this, you know, commander's wife. And I'm like, well, you know, Tom doesn't understand really what it's like to be this poet who feels everything, you know, way too much. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a beautiful partnership. It's a messy democracy. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Is there any advice you have? Because that's a, it's a rare kind of relationship to have that much disagreement. There's that one, is it Carvel, that the political family where one is a, where one is a Republican, the other is a Democrat, and you just can't imagine their conversation every night. Is it, is there a way that you, I mean, it's just, I think it's such an important thing to be able to get past people's opinions and perspectives, especially because we all have different, um, like, like psychological traits as our background view of the world. And so, and that affects so much of how we see things and how we think. Um, and we're sort of given that at birth, basically. I mean, I, uh, my two kids have their personalities were just like in the womb. They were like exactly how they're always going to be. And those things yeah. lead to a certain perspective. And, and it really, it's the way that society is supposed to function, having a diversity of opinions and, and views of things. Um, yeah. So, so it, it seems to me like it would be a great sort of almost a, a Buddhist sense of like letting go, like, or, or compartmentalizing, or how do you do it? Like, how do you, how do you have such strong disagreements, but then still have love and never let that die? Hmm. I think, I mean, vulnerability plays a huge role in it. I think that, um, and the vulnerability in the relationship isn't just mine. Um, Tom also has to be uh, vulnerable. And I think, you know, that's also something that we kind of um, brush away when we think of people in the military, we think of no vulnerabilities, um, or we think that if they do have vulnerabilities, they're not aware of them. Um, We make a lot of assumptions, I think, about um, people in the military. Um, And um, so vulnerability definitely plays a part. You have to still be open to that, um, even after a lot of um, difficult or traumatizing experiences. You have to stay open to that. Um, I think that the key really is being able to communicate and also knowing that you're not always going to communicate well. Um, You know, just because you've been together longer doesn't mean it's always going to be getting better. Like sometimes it sucks and sometimes it will get better. Like, but the only way it gets better is if you're communicating. So I think language really plays a huge part in that as well. Hmm, That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, let's keep the poems going because I want to make sure we, we do enough of them because poems are great and why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do you want to read uh, next? Oh, actually, so I'm going to read when he receives orders to Afghanistan and a parking ticket, how to respond. Um, this is um, this poem is actually kind of um, when I when I was picking poems for this, I could kind of see uh, where a lot of my writing now is coming from. And I think this is where it was starting to germinate of me processing all the things I've been told to do um, and then uh, processing them through through poetry. So in a lot of ways, as a spouse, you are told to to respond a certain way uh, when he receives orders to Afghanistan and a parking ticket, how to respond. What you say matters, each word tagged and monitored like an eaglet. Make your voice a small bird, the kind he can hold in the palm of his hand. Chickadee, sparrow, canary. Use words that behave in the corridors of memory. Don't say fuck. Don't be a blue jay. Don't crack your head on the window or rifle through his duffel. Don't ask where he parked. 
When he hands you the ticket, its charges printed in dark red script, let the checkbook fly from your purse like a finch. Post payment immediately and sing, sing, sing. Don't hoard bits of paper. Don't shred his orders. Don't bark. Don't pick. You are not a magpie. You are not a crow. Your voice is a long, sweet song. Build a nest on his shoulder and rest your head there. Fill his ears with feathers so downy and slight. They can flood a canal and never weigh more than an ounce. And that was uh, when he receives orders to Afghanistan on a parking ticket, how to respond from hail and farewell. <clears throat> um, so what was your... What was the most surprising thing that you found um, as the wife of an, of an officer in the, in the military? Um, you know, was it some, it, how is life different than you would have imagined it? Cause I, I it really was a, a culture shock almost for me when I started playing softball um, with a bunch of people who work at Edwards Air Force Base and there's a whole different, it's a, such a different culture. I mean, they're moving around mm -hmm. all the time. Um, it, and so it makes it so they're like sort of fast friends with people who are in the same area. And there's that kind of camaraderie, but there's also like a, a separate, there's just a separateness to it as far as the community goes too. Um, and, and, and sort of, a I don't know, there's a lot of like positive aspects to it as well. Like a lot of caring and a lot of like camaraderie and like working together to do things like, like the softball team that I'm on, which was like nine out of 10 people are in the, from the air force base. So, um, so, so what was it was the most surprising for you in, in that experience? Hmm. Um, I, Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm maybe I was really pessimistic when I was young, but I feel like the maybe the most surprising thing that I've I've really learned is um I have learned that I have a lot more strength than I thought I did. Yeah. Um I did not when I graduated uh from, you know, undergrad. I got married when I was in college too, which I don't recommend. I mean, if my daughter comes home and she's 18, 17 years old and says I met this guy and he's an ROTC. We're going to get married. Like it's not going to go down the way it went down for me. Um, but when I graduated, I didn't, um, I didn't have the confidence I think that I, that I needed. And I have discovered that I have a lot more strength, um, than I realized, um, as far as the, uh, military culture, I think, um, especially as it concerns military spouses, one of the surprising things is how easy it they make it how easy the military as an institution makes it to isolate yourself. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much encouragement to not leave post. Don't get involved in civilian groups. Like you don't need to leave. Why would you need to leave? There's a PX, there's a Starbucks, there's wives clubs. Like you don't ever need to leave. You can stay here. And the encouragement to isolate um, by calling it insulation and by calling it comfort um, is is really drastic, especially when your spouse ends up getting out of the military. And then you're like, well, what now? Um, you know, now I'm permanently in this community outside the gates. What do I do? Yeah. And it does almost feel like a church, you know, like having that sense of community that is the one thing as an atheist myself, um, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like sort of an envy about people who I know who get to go to church every Sunday and have that the sense of community around them. So that's that sounds mm -hmm. familiar, too, in that regard. Um, I, I want to talk to you about because you've worked on poetry with veterans um, in groups like that. And, and, and poetry is a as a method of healing is such an important thing. We interviewed James Pennebaker a couple of years ago about his work on expressive writing and the actual healing 
that comes from that. Um, uh-huh. How has your how did you get into working with veterans like that, and and what has your experience been like? Have you found that it's been healing for people who would participate in those programs? Yeah, um, in my experience, I've worked. I've definitely worked with more people who have found um, that the practice of writing poetry or fiction, nonfiction, the practice of writing has led to therapeutic results for sure. Um, but not everybody. And, um, I've always been interested in working with service members, um, since, uh, I mean, when I was in high school, before I knew Tom, I was very interested in why our country goes to war, um, and what our country tells people when it goes to war, um, uh, versus the reality. And I've always been really interested in that. And so working with veterans was always very interesting to me. I have loved working with vets, even though, you know, I consider myself anti-war. Um, I'm not uh, anti-service member um, at all. I'm definitely interested in how do we write um, critically and accurately about the systems we find ourselves in, um, even if those systems have served us well. Um, or even if those systems have uh, brutalized people, how do we continue being honest? I mean, honesty is dangerous. Um, so working with veterans, I think, has always been really fascinating to me. Hmm. And when you teach um, with those workshops, do you do you know veteran poets? Like, uh, I mean, Wilfred Owen is, I think, one of the most amazing poets. It's really tragic that he died so young. Um, yeah. and I don't know, do, do you do veteran poets like that? Like Brian Turner, et cetera, or do you do like a broad view of poetry? Um, it kind of depends on, uh, the organization that, um, is asking me to come in there. Often if it is, um, a veterans organization, I will, um, stick to poets who are writing specifically about, um, the experiences of war and the impact of war. I think I especially lean toward uh, bringing in authors who uh, are more women writers. Um, Teresa Fazio, I uh, bring in her memoir, definitely. Um, uh, Lauren Kay has another, she has a book coming out very soon in the next couple of weeks, The Fine Art of Camouflage. Um, I want to bring in more uh, women and definitely bringing in more family members. Lisa Stice um, is another great poet. And um, so, yeah, I, I often will kind of tailor it to um, include, and my emphasis is always on um, including the um, the margins, especially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Bruce Weigel, uh, Eric Campbell mentions another veteran poet who um, he's actually has a poem coming up in, in Rattle, I think in the summer issue. So we'll probably have him on the Rattlecast at some point. Also, oh, uh, Sarah Monroe says it's George and Kellyanne Conway who I was thinking of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Relationship. We are not George and Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> Um, Well, if anybody has any questions for Abby, um, feel free to leave them in the comments, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass any along that that makes sense. Um, But let's hear another poem in the meantime. I think this is the last poem from the book you wanted to read, right? Sure, yeah. Um, Let's see. I'm going to read poem for boys. Um, This book is also, I mean, it it looks at the impact of military, but it's also um, looking at my childhood and looking at my own feminism. And that's what this poem I think is, is trying to do. Poem for boys. Nine years old, and I thought boys were the unlucky ones, born with the tragic body part, a disease they wore on the outside, like a barnacle or drooping fin. 
On the bus after school, Andrew Martin flung his hands over his zipper when I stood up fast, missed my stop by a mailbox. I thought boys were a burden, watched Colin cry in the secret garden while Mary tore his shutters open, heard my grandmother gripe about the boys who became president, became traffic cops. I expected greatness from boys the way I expected it from jellyfish, feared them as I feared seaweed, how it washed up in knots with the driftwood. When I was nine, boys were an exercise in compassion, and I confessed to Father David that I did not like them. They were frail and impractical, too much like roses. Andrew Martin's mother told him he could be anything he wanted, and I told Andrew she lied. In my house, only girls had the grit to transform themselves. My mother's finger looped in gold she bought herself. When I was nine, I told boys I could breathe underwater and drew gills behind my ears with permanent marker. My teacher scrubbed and scrubbed. I could taste the soap in my throat. And that was a poem for boys. Um, another poem from Hail and Farewell. Um, Abby Murray's first book from Perugia Press, which was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award. So do check that out if you would. Beautiful cover, too, right there. Um, so when I think of you, Abby, the thing that comes to mind most is that you were um, in the best two programs, in my opinion. If people ask me what the two programs are that are the best, I always say um, Pacifica University with this, that, that slate of great um, teachers that are there, Marvin Bell included, uh, while he was alive, um, and then SUNY Binghamton, where uh, Maria Gillen is sort of the, runs the show and has for so long, and uh, we've had great relationships with both of them. So it feels like you have had um, just the best poetry education possible. I would say, I mean, I've literally, yeah. like you have the MFA and then you have the PhD, like literally, you are the best educated poet you could possibly <laughs> be. I think. Um, so, so first question: How did you? Find like, how did you end up in the two best programs there are? Like, what were you looking for, and, and how did you know they were so good? Because they are. I mean, it's because we publish so many poems in those, uh, you know, poets from those programs. It's just like you can see, like, it, you can see that they're writing real things with the music and, and a depth to it, but, but like, not sort of superficially clawing for, for that hierarchy you mentioned earlier, but, like, genuine poets yeah. seem to all come from those programs. And there's so many Rattle Poetry Prize winners and stuff that do, and our chapbook is series is full of them. So, so how did you find that program? Like, what were you looking for? And, and what was your experience like there? So when I applied for MFA programs, I, I did that at the encouragement of my mother. I moved to Alaska and was really depressed. Uh, and uh, she was like, you need to, you need to start writing again. You need to go and study writing. So I did. I looked up um, MFA programs. I was accepted to one in California, and I can't recall the name of the school, uh, but it was a, a resident. You had to be there. You had to live there. And I was like, why did I even apply here? I can't go anywhere because I move every like eight to nine months. And so I also applied for one low residency program, which was Pacific. Um, and uh, I got in there and I was so glad because you went to a residency in January and June um, and then did everything else by correspondence. And every single residency, I came from a different place. I was either in Oregon or Washington, Alaska. Um, I think I was done 
by the time I was in Georgia. Um, but I lived in Atlanta and then I lived in Columbus, Georgia too. So, um, it, it low residency made the most sense. Um, when I went there, it was, um, Marvin at Marvin's encouragement. He had read my application. Yeah. And so what do you think that those two programs have in common? I mean, what makes them, is there, is there something that being that both programs, you can sort of see that they do, that they do right. They must be. Yeah, I mean, they have genuinely good poets and loving, kind poets working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, maybe that's not not as common as, as we think, um, I think, to be um, not only a really just dynamite poet, but also just a really good fucking person. Like, that's really hard to find. And like Maria Gillen and Joe Weil, I mean, at Binghamton, those are really good people. And you know, I want to be around Maria all the time. I have like an, an inner Maria in my voice and like in my head. Um, and she's very, very helpful. <laughs> like, So yeah, just having really good poets who actually care about you as a person um, and care about your poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. so why, why did you start writing poetry in the first place? Was there something that drew you to it? Um, well, the so I grew up with a single mom and I had five sisters. So um I had three um adopted sisters and two biological sisters and um just my mom. So our house was lots of estrogen um and lost lots of athletes. Um I was involved in dance, I played the violin, um, I did all these things, but my sisters always competed with me and poetry was the first thing that none of my sisters wanted. So I like, once I did it, I was like, Oh, I kind of like this. So I ended up um, sticking with it. And then I think later in high school, when I realized that poetry could be subversive, I was just sold, you know, I was like, okay, I'm in, this is, this is kind of who I am. Mm -hmm. And running on that, there's a question from Eric Campbell. Um, He says, if you had to choose the primary function of poetry today, would you say this communal therapeutic, like sort of a public you know, communal therapeutic mm-hmm. thing or literary, like print based and consumed in isolation. Ooh, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would consider it either of those. I think poetry is, you know, by all practices, it is communication. You write to communicate. Um, even when people say, oh, I just write for myself and I, you know, burn the papers or whatever, you're still writing in a shared language. It's a common language and you are writing um, to communicate and connect with others. So if connection and communication ends up being therapeutic, cool. Um, if it ends up getting you published, cool. Um, it will not always do um, either one or both of those things, but primarily it's communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if, um, you know, the, the therapeutic aspect is going to have to be the main thing eventually because of the whole AI and the chat GPT thing. You know, mm-hmm. if you're writing to please other people in that way, it's not going to be long before all it takes is somebody to train AI on poetry and not just what the internet thinks of poetry. And they're going to be writing good poems and then we're going to be in trouble, I think. So how, how do you like, think of that, like poetry going forward? Do you think that uh, to me, I feel like it's going to have to be more about that aspect that's always there, which is that sort of spiritual meditative therapeutic thing that we do in processing Mm -hmm. our life um, and, and noticing the world more, it makes life better when you're writing poetry. 
And and I think that that aspect has to take the front seat because if you're just writing to please others, um, you know, people are going to be faking those poems with AI and pretending they're theirs and there's yeah. going to be no way. There's an arms race already. I think, I don't know if um, you saw, but but which was it? Clark's World, I think, shut down submissions because they were getting so many written yeah. by chat GPT. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's coming for poetry soon. Uh, yeah. so, so what do you think of it going forward? Do you, what do you think the future is in terms of that? Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... I think people have been having a lot of fun with it. Um, at uh, I mean, I can't, maybe I'm kind of, I think this is, I have a lot of dark humor and I think that's definitely from my proximity to the military. But like when all this started happening, I was kind of like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course there's a fucking chat bot that's going to write poems and like, I'm going to write all these stories and submit a ton of them. And like, um, so I'm, but I honestly, I don't feel too worried. I feel, um, you know, no one can take my experiences. No one can um, copy my connections with other people. Um, crimes can be committed and language can be stolen um, and stories can be stolen, but it doesn't mean that they are no longer owned um, by the people who have them. I mean, I don't think it can take those stories. So I think I agree with you that, um, that poetry is going to be changing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, as it does, it does all the time. I mean, the way that like most poems being published today don't look like most poems being published 30 years ago. So everything, it's always constantly changing. And just because technology is developing doesn't mean that poets aren't developing too. I think poets are constantly shifting and changing. So I feel like poets and our stories and our lives and what we need from poetry is constantly changing. So we're hard to catch, I think. Um, so I'm yeah. not too worried, but maybe I'm naive. <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, from an editor's perspective, I, I'm a little worried myself, <laughs> just how I, I might have to have at some point a submission fee, which I, I was always like, never, ever. But if people are just like throwing in, you know, you know, chat GPT poems, I mean, that's one, yeah. you know, reason to not, it's something you could sort of leverage and um, make a profit off of even if you're doing it quick enough, which really might screw up the whole submission system, which is what that, that Clark's world shutting down was a big eye opening. I hadn't considered that aspect of it. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure either, but I do think it's like the radio, you know, like when, you know, that was where our stories were for a while it was on the radio, people sitting around that. And then the TV came and, People thought, oh, mm -hmm. no one's going to have a radio in 20 years. And then it became a whole different purpose in the, the car and then talk radio and those call-in shows and now podcasts. It's all a, a way that that sort of technology, we, we find uses for it still. And I think we definitely will with poetry, that's for sure. Um, well, and I think with Rattle, too, don't you have uh, poets say something about the – is it something about the piece or is it more of a creative bio? Because I know that at Collateral, I have conversations with every writer that we publish about the piece. So mm -hmm. it's it would be – it would be awkward to have that conversation with a chat bot. Um, I'm not saying it's not possible, but um, doesn't rattle do that too, where you kind of interact yeah, that way? Yeah, we do definitely interact. And then the, 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 po the bio at the end doesn't have to be about the piece itself, but it does um, often, you know, for the first one, usually mm -hmm. people talk more in general and then they start getting specific if they have extra poems. And, um, and, and for poets respond, it's always about that too. Um, yeah, it's just interesting to think about. Uh, but but going back to, to your writing process and, and your learning through all these great poets that Marvin Bell, we have that tribute to Marvin Bell that, that we published over the summer. Um, and, and Maria, like, what did you learn from from those great poets that, that you applied to your own writing? And how has your writing evolved throughout through meeting them? 
Mm, yeah. Um, Marvin told me uh, when I was, he did not want me to apply to PhD programs. I think he was um, thinking that academia has a way of drying up creativity um, and squashing creativity. Um, and I applied anyway, but he told me whatever you do, protect your urge to write. Um, and I imagined it for some reason, and I've told my students this too, I don't know if this metaphor actually works, but what I was picturing when he said that was like, there's a hurricane going um, around me, everything is flying, houses are flying, cars, and I have my creativity under this cloche, and I'm protecting it like, you know, with all that I have, like, so... I am very protective of my creativity. I'm very conscious of when I am being overworked to the point where I'm thinking about cutting into that time that I reserve um, for creativity. And I don't write regularly. Like I don't have like a certain hour that I write. Marvin was really good about that. I'm just like, I mean, I have a third grader and I am usually solo parenting and, you know, patching jobs together. Like I do not have a set, a set time to write but I do write a poem a week. I do write an essay a week and I send it to um, a group of poets um, and a group of uh, readers to keep myself accountable. And I am conscious of when I'm starting to dip into that time um, because that's definitely precious and that's what Marvin taught me. Um, I think Maria taught me um, as, to not be afraid of um, what other people think of you um, and what other people think of poetry. Um, just because something is corny, like believing in yourself, um, doesn't mean you need to give a fuck. Mm -hmm. And Maria was so good at that. And like, you know, she she just lived it in front of you. And it was brilliant. It was kind of like, you know, walking behind someone who's just hacking the blackberries down and you get to walk right along behind. So, I mean, she had a certain bravery and courage that, um, was really necessary to me when I met her. Well, um, you have some newer poems that you sent. Do you want to read uh, one of those? Yeah. Let's see which one. Um, so I was going to read a newer poem. Um, this is the one that I wrote last week. Um, and I like to, I like to try out new stuff, um, see how it goes. And I was thinking, cause I'm about to move I have uh, been thinking about how I was just telling people here that I'm I'm moving again. And they're like, you just got here. And I, I think I'm mostly friends with people who are not in the military and uh, don't understand this, this lifestyle at all. And so they're like, well, where are you from? And it's funny that the bio you introduced me with is originally from the Pacific Northwest because this poem is like, I don't fucking know where I'm from. Um, so this is, uh, you're from nowhere. If you have too many hometowns or none at all, if you willingly carry the dark Alaska months within you, but shrug off its infinite summers, if you take the word y'all from Georgia, but not its balmy winters, if you miss the snow in Colorado, in New York, if you mistake the Metro for Marta, if you walk toward a cafe in Portland while hungry in downtown DC, if you call more than one team yours at a single baseball game, if you can recite each Seattle zip code you've used, but none of the highways in Columbus, if you think forever home means cemetery, if you think belonging is two words, if the neighbors ask where you're from and you pause to wonder, that's an answer. 
they'll want to show you how they were born and bred here, which is a bread you can't taste anywhere. You can chew and chew its crust and still not get it. That flavor of knowing where you are before you know how to leave it. That was great. That was a, a brand new poem. You're from nowhere by Abby E. Murray. Um, hot off the press from last week. <laughs> so I do. I love poem, writing a poem once a week, which is why we do the Rattlecast prompts. It's it's really fun to have something and then you know trying different things all the time. Um, how do you how do you get yourself into the, that one poem that you're going to write? Is there a certain process that you do, um, or do you just it just goes how it goes every time? Um, I mean, sometimes there it's, it's different. Um, I've noticed a pattern cause I've been doing this poem every week and sending it to a group since like 2016. And it started as a way to get through faculty meetings on Friday afternoon. Why in God's name are faculty meetings always at four o'clock on a Friday? It is beyond me, but, um, I have never been mentally present there. Um, and so writing a poem and sending it to, uh, colleagues was a way to get through these meetings. Um, I've noticed though, in the last few years, I tend to, I send it out on Friday before midnight. That's my rule. Saturday I'm spent Sunday. I'm pretty spent Monday. I am starting to get an idea or something has pissed me off. Tuesday, I start putting things down on the page and I hate writing. I hate everything I've written, but I force myself to keep it. Um, Wednesday, I start um, uh, refining, um, kind of pulling out the like main idea um, that I have on the page, something that's that feels worth keeping um, to me. I pull that aside. Um, Thursday is fine tuning. And then Friday, I write an essay to go mm. with it. So, so what... Uh... What is the essay? It goes with the poem somehow? Yeah, yeah. So I've, um, it's kind of turned into uh, an essay. I need to put these together into a book because I have like one a week for the past, you know, however many years. So I have all these essays about, um, sometimes it's about what happened during the week. Um, this past week, it was about all the different places I've moved. I did like a short little one paragraph for every place I lived in. Um, and moved from so and then it went with this poem so sometimes it does do you find essay writing to be very different from poetry because i do to me an essay you're sort of searching in the same way like you're just sort of talking more <laughs> or something yeah like there's a way that in a good essay you don't really know where you're going or it ruins it and it's the same yeah. way with poetry like you have to sort of have this like itch that you need to scratch and you're kind of like yeah. nosing your way through and following some kind of scent and then at the end you're like oh that's <laughs> that makes sense and and that's when the an essay works i think that's how it works and that's how a poem works too so it feels very similar yeah. actually it does feel really similar and i think they're similar in that both of them are sort of um you know it's like looking in the sun you, you don't want to look directly at it you want to be respectful of it and just let it happen if the idea comes to you. But I do find that I tend to be good at either one at a time. Like poems are coming really easily for me. I'll have a week where I write three and they feel really strong. And I hate essays. Like I sit down to write it and I'm like, I hate this. This is stupid. And so I'll usually write about how much I hate <laughs> writing essays. And then, then I'll have months where the essays come freely. And so I don't know. Yeah, they are similar and they're also different. Yeah. Um, there's a question here from uh, Liz Culpepper. She says, um, I'm a fellow Army spouse and writer. Do you ever get pushback from folks in the military community? Girl, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super awkward. Um, uh, pretty uncomfortable. I And Liz, I... <laughs> 
I'm going to remember this uh, question. So I'm writing a book of poems. I recently went to wife school um, in the fall. It's at Fort Leavenworth and um, it's for uh, commanders wives. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and I'm writing a book of a uh, chapbook of poems about this and it's going to be really awkward and I expect to get pushed back. And so it's really uncomfortable. I wish I had a way of saying it's okay. Um, but it's usually not, it's really hard. There's a lot of pushback. And a lot of the time, most of the pushback is from other military spouses who should be supporting you. Um, but who are saying, you know, they've, they've given up a lot for this lifestyle and to see you writing how you're going to write about it, you know, your own truth, um, is often seen as a threat. Um, so it can be really, it can be really painful and it can be really scary, but in my opinion so far, it has been incredibly worth it. It's been a survival skill so far. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's more from, from other people in the military. What about the sort of the apparatus of the institution? Do they ever get upset? I mean, I think, especially, you know, when the topics are anti-war, I mean, they spend good money to like fly over the Super Bowl and have all that stuff that's going <laughs> on, you know, and they don't want some uh, poet undercutting their, uh, their investment in the next generation's recruits, right? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have, um, experienced some, so at, at wife school, um, uh, a general came and spoke and he was on the stage and there were hundreds of people and, you know, it was time for, they were encouraging military spouses to ask questions. And, you know, the first question was a spouse and she wanted her question was she wanted a picture with him. And so like they, you know, did pushups and like came up and, you know, um, took pictures. And I asked a question um, about whether or not there was going to be a development of any kind of policy for military leadership communicating online um, because of the case with um, Colonel Donahue, who uh, was, you know, they, they keep using the word defending women um, uh, when Tucker Carlson was making comments. Anyway, he was investigated after he um, tweeted about it. And I was asking about policy and whether policy was going to be um, developed. It wasn't handled well. Um, and uh, my husband actually happened to be working in the Pentagon. Um, and the person working for the general was like, what happened there? You know, it didn't, mm -hmm. this was a, a total mess. And so, yeah, there can be pushback, I think, from the institution as well. But I have to say, too, I've gotten a lot of support from the military institution, too. I can't tell you how many service members um, and officers that I've gotten to work with who have just been so thrilled at hearing their own writing voices, um, who have been thrilled at being able to tell their own stories. So like, even though I'm talking about pushback, I feel like I, I receive a lot more support um, than pushback. I should clarify that. Yeah, it's interesting. I know somebody who... Um... Um, sort of quit being a poetry person and still writes poetry, but but quit to become a copywriter um, for the Pentagon and was just always was talking about how much respectful it was and how much you know, as opposed to being an adjunct professor of literature at a college. <laughs> Um, you know, it felt like, you know, becoming royalty or something. Um, and yeah. it, it is interesting that that contrast. Um, so I want to, let's see, there's a time for two more poems. Let's, uh, let's do one poem and then we'll talk a little more and then do another poem. I want to make sure we get to all of them. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. How about, um, how to begin your Sunday with a broken heart? 
Uh, I just wrote this after um, driving back uh, home on one Sunday. How to begin your Sunday with a broken heart. Your daughter's voice thick beneath a wet cough, thrashing like a bird in crude oil. You drive five miles into the city to buy her a donut frosted yellow and piped to look like an Easter chick because you can, because you have time and $3 and little else to offer. On your way home, a robin in the road, standing sentinel over a lost mitten, you swerve. At the next light, still flush with time, you circle back and park, wanting to shoo her into the cherry trees nearby, wanting to startle a problem out of your way, because who doesn't want to make room for their former self, the one who knows life is short and exists anyway, the one who takes up more space than the you who feels nothing will end, not the war, not the graves, not even a cough. You step into the road, close enough to make the robin understand, to make her take off, then close enough to see the glove she guarded is a thing with feathers, her mate struck dead. You stand where she stood in traffic, realizing, until a car flashes its lights at you, as if to say, whatever you do, hurry up. I can't tell you whose rules you obeyed when you stooped to scoop the body into your hands. I'm not sure whose funeral you moved toward when you found the robin waiting at the base of a tree, still teaching you how to mourn, how to collect a sorrow. She was so still, you could have touched her. She could have flown away. You laid her wild grief at her feet and she let you. And there's another new poem, um, How to Begin Your Sunday with a Broken Heart by Abby E. Murray. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk more about Poets Respond a little bit and how you approach that. Because you do, I mean, I should say, too, that um, so many times, in addition to the dozen or whatever we've published, like, you have so many poems that are like, oh, that's one of my top five. I mean, there's, I see your name, like, almost every week. <laughs> um, and, and you just have great poems all the time. So how do you approach news and current events and write in a way, you know, it's so easy to have an opinion, but so hard to have like a poetic opinion, I guess you could say, where it's, you know, it's not just preaching to the choir and, and, you know, not like saying that, I always think about how Troy Jallimore was like, political poems are just, you know, cheering on your own values. Like, aren't my values good? And, you know, there's a way that you have to, um, you know, get beyond that and to sort of be gnawing at some kind of problem every time or else it doesn't work. So how do you do that? How do you make, when you have mm -hmm. specific, you know, polarized type political opinions, which you obviously do, um, how do you mm -hmm. cut through that to make relevant poetry that's, that's actually creative in the way that poetry is? Yeah, I think... I mean, sometimes there are weeks where I don't write about what is happening um, in current events. And so I, I, you know, I can't submit, submit those, you know, the one from uh, last week that you're from nowhere. I mean, that had nothing to do with, with what was going on in the news. Um, but um, I think I'm one of my strengths as a poet is that maybe this is from Maria is like, um, I can really flip a switch and not give a shit what people think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very wary of anyone who tries to tell me what poetry is. Um, I'm very wary of, of people who tell me, uh, you know, what poetry can and can't do. Um, and I say that to my students because I'm like, I can tell you what I think um, poetry 
does um, be, based on what it has done for me, um, it's probably going to be different um, for you. And I get really annoyed. I'm very impatient uh, with people who are like, well, this is what poetry is, um, you know, and th this is what poetry can't do. And you can't do this. and You can do this. Like, I don't write in a space where I can hear them at all. Um, I have a really good door that locks. Um, and when I'm writing, I don't hear them. I don't care what they're saying. And so when I'm writing, I am able to be my authentic self. I am unobstructed and I can do that no matter where I am or, you know, what has happened during my week. It's kind of like, leave it at the door as long as I don't even have to be in a safe space to, to be able to uh, write that and to be able to think about language and my stories. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned what poetry's done for you. What, what has poetry done for you? How would you characterize it? Um, it's kept me alive. And I know that, you know, I think a lot of people say that actually, but um, it has been a survival skill for me moving around so often. Um, and I think surviving the um, expectations of military culture um, and surviving this country and the expectations um, that especially that are put on women, um, poetry has been a way for me to survive. And, you know, as I'm talking about it, I'm kind of like, well, maybe it's the it's the process of writing poetry, too, of being able to um not give a shit. Um, that's really important. Um, that has become really crucial, um, I think, to the way that I live my life. So um, poetry is always something that I can take anywhere. It's not, it doesn't require any accessories. I don't even need a pen. I don't need a computer. Um, I can take it anywhere. And so that to me has has meant a lot because I have to be able to let go of everything else. I have to be able to let go of laptops and mm -hmm. pens and books and stuff. Yeah. Uh, when I when I first met you, it was at, at Marie Gillen's class and your daughter was like just months old and she was there at the class with you, which was so sweet. And it makes yeah. me wonder, though, like, would you encourage her to, to take up poetry? Is it is it something that you you encourage in her? I guess she's in third grade now. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I write, I write a lot about May. Um, she's hilarious. I mean, and I, I spend a lot of time with her, just me and her, because uh, Tom's gone a lot. And um, I do encourage her to write poetry. I know that if May does end up rebelling someday, it's going to be by hating poetry yeah. um, or like hating the arts. I think that would be a really good way to get uh, to push my buttons really quickly. Um, so, you know, good luck to her. But I think um, I don't expect her to to write poetry, but I am always talking, I think, especially about telling the truth um, and the importance of being honest um, and the importance of doing what we know and what we feel and what we believe is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say the same thing that I think um, the, the lessons you get from poetry, which are like presence and, mm -hmm. and sort of gratitude or and like noticing things and examining yeah. yourself and your emotions. You can get them a lot of different ways, but poetry is a really cool way to do it. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, how, that's what I would say, I think. Um, one last question. So what are you working on now? This book is actually uh, three years old or almost four, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, how are you sort of organizing the, the poems that you have now? Are you thinking of a manuscript or, or what are you working on? Like, what's the theme? Is it shifted from this topic? Yeah. Um, well, kind of. I have a second book of poems that is with a couple of publishers right now, and it's 
it's like it's been a bridesmaid a couple of times in a couple of contests, but it's still under consideration at a couple of other ones. It's called Recovery Commands. Um, and it's sort of, I don't know if poetry manuscripts can have sequels, but like it's kind of the sequel to to Hail and Farewell. Mm -hmm. And I have enough for a third manuscript that I haven't started compiling yet because I'm putting together a chapbook of poems on wife school and um, a book of essays um, based on all those essays that I've been writing um, on Friday. So I have a lot of different um, writing projects going on, but I also have, um, we publish uh, two issues a year for collateral too. So I have that and also teaching argumentation. So I have a lot. Yeah, I forgot to like talk a little bit about Collateral. Let's do that before we do the last poem. So, so explain why you started Collateral. I, I should have had that earlier on, and uh, <laughs> and, and what what's your experience like been doing that, and, and how does the how does the journal function? Um, it's an online uh, journal, and we publish um, literary and visual art. There's one visual artist and many um, literary artists in every issue. We publish two a year. Um, it's free. There's no um, subscription, and I like you don't want to charge um, submission fees uh, for as long as possible. Um, and the journal is entirely based on uh, looking at work that is examining the impact of both war and also military service. Um, and it's all beyond the combat zone. So there's lots of places that are publishing the combat story, the combat narrative. Um, there's not as many places, I think, publishing those those reaching effects. You know, growing up the, the child of a combat veteran or growing up an immigrant and um, moving to another country. I mean, that's what I wanted collateral um, to to focus on, and that's where it started. And it, I mean, it's been going for seven years. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, great work with that, and all the things you do. And two, like if you do, you know, you know, a poem a week and an essay a week, you end up with so much stuff, which is a yes. a great reason to do the Rattlecast prompt every week, and then share a poem on the open lines because in <laughs> you know a couple of years you got a whole book of poems or two or three, and you're trying to figure out how to fit yeah. them together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you have a book. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let's finish up with one last poem. Sure. Um, this is If I Should Succeed. Um, and I wrote this after Ada Limone. She has a poem called If I Should Fail. Um, and I just kind of was reading her book and I was like, oh, I'm going to write a kind of a response poem, but if I should succeed. Know that my kitchen windowsill contains no less than three small plants I refuse to admit I've killed by failing to love them. That I cannot speak even the simplest language of measuring water and sun. Not even to the hearty potted herbs I buy from the grocery store where they are arranged in their leafy prime beneath a sign that says, grow your own as if I will since I can, but I haven't succeeded, not yet not after years of inventing and reinventing my touch, imagining it softer, wiser, but still not gentle or smart enough for whichever God I'm praying to. The one who distributes life one sprig and bloom at a time, who doesn't forget me so much as she expects me to wait, amuse myself in the meantime by abandoning hope and picking it up again over and over until she returns to my kitchen in disguise, as always, rising in a loaf of rosemary bread so idyllically browned, I'll realize I did everything right, that luck had nothing to do with it, 
And because I lived, a good thing happened. Uh, it's a great poem and great poem to end on. If I should succeed, another <laughs> newer one from Abby. Uh, thanks so much for being a guest, Abby. It was fun as I knew it would be. I always love your poems. So do all our, our viewers and readers. And um, it's great to meet you again and, uh, yeah, and talk poetry you. for a while. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. This was really, this was a blast. Cool. Well, take care. Hopefully uh, a new book comes out. We'll have you on again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know. Okay, cool. Take care. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. And that was Abby E. Murray with, uh, um, Hail and Farewell, her newest book. Um, you can find Abby's, all of her work at Abby E. Murray. That's A-B-B-Y-E Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. Um, Abby E. Murray.com. So do check that out. Now we're gonna take a quick break and go to open lines. And, um, let me put up the description on the screen. So first, if you'd like to share a poem, email it to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Um, Email it to me there so I can show it on the screen like Abby's poems were shown um, as you read. Um, that's for only for people watching at home, not on the Zoom. But uh, email me the poem first, openmic at, at rattle.com. And then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to share. Uh, we copy the invite link. I'm going to post this link into the chat, the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook. So find the link only if you'd like to share a poem. You can sit right where you are if you don't have a poem to share and just enjoy all the great poems. Uh, but if you have a poem to share, email it and then join us on the Zoom. So here are the links, and I will uh, stand up and stretch a little bit, get right back to you with the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, let me... Uh Okay, so uh, the prompt for this week, and I'm sorry, this is the first week I failed. I had plans to write, I had a whole hour, you know, um, set up to write a poem, and I, um, you know, I shoveled the driveway for six hours, and then there ended up being an extra hour of shoveling that I didn't anticipate, so I've actually shoveled for seven hours today, and there was like three minutes left before the show, and I was trying furiously to write a three-minute poem and that just didn't work three-minute poem is too short the 10-minute poem was okay last week um but three minutes is officially not long enough for a poem so i'm sorry that i i let you <laughs> let you down this time um the prompt though which i have the title and i have like the first line so i'll write it and then and then share it next week oh hang on a second let me mute this yeah so if you're uh, if you're on the zoom keep it in mute until it's your turn to read um, and, uh, let's see. So the, the prompt though was to write a poem about a time you faced a more, or no, wrong prompt. The prompt was write a poem around a simile, comparing an emotion to a grammatical term, such as love as an intransitive verb or anger as a semicolon. Those are just two examples. You can do whatever you want. Um, there's so many weird grammatical terms, which I didn't know until I started Googling. Um, and so I have my term and I have my, uh, emotion, but um, I still need to write my poem. So I'll share that next week. Let's see what we've got in the meantime, though. And let's go to, uh, we'll go to, um, to Audrey first. Hello, everybody. Hey, Audrey, how you doing? Oh, I love these prompts. I write things I never would have otherwise written. Um, I, tell me when you're ready. Yeah, so, so what did you have that you, I have the, is it bad grammar? That's it. <laughs> Okay, I may try rewriting it using semicolons <laughs> instead of my backslashes. Interesting. So, so what was what was inspired? How did this poem come to be? What what inspired it? Well, I think um, 
just the prompt itself. And I'm thinking about the semicolon, which is um, not often used, and the implication it has by giving that little cushion of air between two related thoughts that don't hang together. Mm -hmm. um, and so I ended up with a surprise. Um, so bad grammar. Alienation is like a semicolon, separation of the clauses, like a chasm between a man and a woman who can no longer hang as a complete sentence. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I love that. Bad Grammar by Audrey Friedman. Thanks so much, Audrey, for sharing that. That was really neat. Thank you for the impetus. Yeah, good use of that metaphor. All right. Yeah, it was Audrey Friedman with uh, Bad Grammar. And next up, a first-time caller, I believe, Susan Bangs Monroe. So I had not read the prompt. So I, I <laughs> oh, I should have said, too. Um, yeah. I should have said so. that you don't have to do it for the prompt. It can be a poem about current events. It can be something you published recently, just something you wrote this week and want to share. It's totally open. So I should have included that in my little monologue there. But uh, whatever you want to share is great. So what do you have for us? All right. So hold on. I didn't expect you were going to accept that uh, explanation. So <laughs> No, it's fine. Well, you're looking for it. Tell us where you're calling from. So I'm calling from Evanston, Illinois. Oh, okay. Outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So this is a poem that was actually, I've been using uh, Patty Smith's new book, A Book of Days, as a prompt every day for journaling and writing. Mm -hmm. He had a photo of a boulder field in Iceland. And I have hiked in Iceland with my ex-husband. So this is called Rules for Climbing a Boulder Field. Look for signs of recent avalanche, even if you've been married for years. Tread lightly, like a cat. Pretend agility. Say with confidence, I've got this. Smile as you look toward your partner, just a dot rounding the next switchback. Stand up. Once you drop to your hands, you've lost your balance and the battle. Terror will roll you. Tension will freeze you in one position. Don't lose hope. Discount the blood on your knuckles. Your banged up knees are nothing. Admire the colors. Ponder the geology. Pray to the water gods who roll the boulders smooth to hold them still. Don't be distracted by the greetings of passing strangers with better boots. When you twist your ankle, be brave. When he doesn't come back for you, be understanding and blame yourself. Do not stop to snack when you reach the path. You have catching up to do. Above all, do not blame the boulders. Adapt these rules for crossing streams, facing grizzlies, and enduring heartache. Oh, thanks so much for sharing that. I love that line, do not blame the boulders. That's kind of the kind of thing that you could uh, have a tattoo of or something. That's really cool. <laughs> Susan Bangs Monroe, thanks so much for joining us and sharing that poem. Um, hope you send uh, share another one soon. Okay. Yep. Take care. Thank you for letting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So that was uh, Susan Bangs Monroe. That was um, Rules for Climbing a Boulder Field. Um, great. Let's go next to Carla Schwartz. 
And I should say, hey, Carla, I just I should say uh, not for you specifically, but I should say it's uh, one poem each night. I think we're just going to have one poem forever because every for the last weeks and weeks we've had, I think, like a dozen. It's about as much as we can handle anyway. So, um, right. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) I sent two poems. I just want you to read the second one yourself because it's called The Art of Shoveling. And it's (sighs) it's like a recipe poem for shovelers. Okay, and you don't have to read it out loud. Okay, (laughs) but this is um, called a prompt poem. And it's called Grief as Ellipsis. Oh, interesting. I'm not sad that my father died. He needed to. But I'm sad that he's gone and my mother, too. When I see their photos emerge in rotation on my screen, my father's arm enfolds my mother, not the other way around. I wonder about what arguments they might have had that day before they turned and smiled for the camera for me. Those pictures, those times when their minds were teeth and mine had just begun to form. I hadn't then understood love or grief. In time, I came to love them both their flaws enmeshed with mine. No argument couldn't be tamed by taking a swim or hike. But in the end, each in their turn lay down in bed to die. The shriveling of life, the fading of dreams, the unendurable weight conceived my grief. Oh, very interesting poem. Grief as ellipsis. And we have a lot of ellipsis there for those just watching or just view, or just listening, I should say. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Always a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. Yep. Take care. Okay. This is Carla Schwartz with uh, Grief as Ellipses. Uh, next up, we will go to Dick Westheimer. Hello, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Did you get your... Uh, I heard that you were stuck and <laughs> needed a jump in Ohio. I wish I could have got to help, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I could have gotten to you with my hot tub today with, for you to come into. Oh, that'd be nice, because this is the source I've been in a long time. I mean, it was, oh. it was a lot. Like, each each like foot, like square foot was like four shovels, you know? It was just like, just to get to the earth. Was it... Light snow or heavy snow? It is pretty heavy. It's a lot of water content in that. I was thinking about, like, you had to remember, like, to prop your screen door open before the snow hit. Yeah. uh, With with that much snow. Yeah, luckily we don't. None of the houses here do. And I wonder if that's why, actually. I always wondered why people don't have screens. We don't have much bugs. It's so dry. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's it. But people just, you know, you walk in the dog at night and people just have their front door open with no screen. But, uh... But yeah, it is. If you do have one, you could not get out, <laughs> which yeah. I wouldn't have thought about. Good thing we yeah. don't. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you got out, and I'm uh, glad you got back to your very comfortable office. Um, I had such fun with the prompt poem. I didn't have time to write it. I'm working on too many other things, but I got encouraged by a fellow rattlecaster. But I'm going to skip it tonight because uh-huh. I want to read my prompt poem. Okay. Um, which are not my prop poem, my poets respond, which is on the occasion of the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, that was definitely the hot topic this week. We had, uh, I'd say about 40% of submissions were about this. So it's definitely still in everybody's consciousness, even though it's not on the front page of the news, maybe. Yeah, I, th- I think it, I think it gets 
good coverage. It's just sort of become a political item as everything does and, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's getting siloed like like things do. Um, so this is a longer poem than I usually write, but I'm gonna see if I, I can hold my breath long enough to read the whole thing. Um, okay. And it's on it the title is sort of explains it. On the occasion of the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the perpetual anniversary of all the rest of the wars. The epigraph is from Muriel Ruckhauser. Then I saw what the calling was, not to me the calling, but to anyone. I am done with war. I have decided to go to the woods, and I hear the ravaged elm and oak calling to me. Trees felled in the last winter storm need tending, and the sawing, and the bucking, and the dragging of brush is a fine beguilement, because here the war dead are not dead, and I don't think of the endless grief of so many Yemeni, and I've seen no photos of human remains from the Horn of Africa, the hundred thousand or so because the body count is unknown, invisible, as in Mali and the Maghreb and in the forest and fields of the Rakhine state, uh, lost my place, those places so far away from my TV screen mean nothing if I can't see. And even if I could, I think the pooled red blood would dry before news got to me, before I dragged back to the house to scroll through stories told of broken bones and ransacked homes, or just one woman's fear when the war-gorged men entered her town, her house, her daughter taken away. And it's all the same everywhere and always but I have chosen one where the living look like me, where they abide in cities full of light and opera and synagogues, one like mine, where my people have lived for a thousand years, where the streets are lined with row homes and the farms grow the kind of food I eat, where the sunflowers bloom the same time there as here, where the songbirds of spring come to sing just like here, ignore folks like me clearing deadfall elms from woodland paths and streams. And I am not ashamed, are you, that I cannot tend to any of the dead or maimed or those driven from their homes, or even one piano not played, one lullaby not sung, one dolly not hugged, because it is spring and the first thaw frees the soil. The petrichor calls. I've sorted seed and counted the days till the first goes in the ground um, and know already where I'll plant my peas and greens, and later on, where the frosts and springtime storms, when the frosts and springtime storms are gone, sunflowers, 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 whose world kernels will feed both the marauding crows and me. Yeah, Mary Mary Lisa says great rhythm there in the comments on Zoom. And I was going to say the exact same thing. Great incantation kind of poem, Dick. And uh, I'm glad you wrote about one because you have the book, um, A Sword in Both Hands is the title, right? About um, responding to the war in Ukraine. And we're going to have you as a guest, we decided, on, um, um, what is it, April 3rd, I think, or something like that? 
third. Yeah. There you go. So, um, so we get to learn all the people who are used to uh, all the great poems by Dick. We'll get to learn more about what makes Dick tick. And I'm looking forward to that. I guess I, I'm a poet and I don't know it. I didn't even mean to say that, but it's true. Um, I'm curious to hear uh, more about your background and, and get to hear more about this book too that you just put out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Tim. Yep, yep. Thank Thanks, Dick. Talk to you soon. I love the interview today, and Julia's poem was was a masterclass. I yeah, yeah, she's great. I love a good villain, Alan. That was really that's timeless. That's a really good one. Good. Yeah. See take you care. All. Yep. Bye. Bye. It was Dick Westheimer with um, on the occasion of the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the perpetual anniversary of all the rest of the wars. Uh, next up, let's go to Katie Dozier. Hi, Tim. How are you? Hey, Katie. Good. How are you? Good. I'm excited to hear Dick Westheimer is going to be on the Rattlecast. That was great. I news. know. We kind of went back and forth whether or not to, to have it because it's a you know narrow topic book and he's got other books in the works. But uh, we decided to do it because I think everybody's really curious to hear more about uh, where Dick comes from. So, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Okay. Well, I have the prompt poem this week. And I really like the prompt. I went a little crazy with the prompt. It's probably good. You limited us to one this week because I had like eight. <laughs> so hopefully I picked the best one of eight. I guess eight. if I wrote eight and they all are terrible, that's a really bad sign. That would be a bad sign. <laughs> but somehow I doubt that's the case. Okay. All right. So this is called Enthrallment is an M-Dash. Here is a little bridge I build to you to walk along the cobblestones. Like fawns, some will wobble, yet an arm stretches out, so smooth as if my reach iron straight the lightning bolts. Every M-dash is a flash, and look what I can hand you, a glass of water teetering on the far edge of your mind, metaphors balanced on the wingspan of a raven's time, staples on construction paper, uncoiled twine, pluck this taut guitar string, string twice this lime, black or black fingernails, line dance back to home, how we grip this magician's wand, strike the unknown. Yeah, Didn't excellent. quite slice that one line. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. So tell me, what was it about the prompt that made eight poems come about? Was it, uh, what do you think it was that made it work for you? Because I'm always trying to figure out how to do better prompts. I think anytime there's an excuse to Google and learn, I'm mm -hmm. kind of a sucker for that. So I was Googling, like, I wrote a haiku sequence on obscure, you know, obscure little grammatical marks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it works, but I sure had fun writing it. Well, sounds good. I'm <laughs> glad you did. Uh, good to see you, Katie, as always. And I uh, hope you have another poem for us next week. Right. Thanks for digging yourself out of the snow in order sure. to do this awesome show tonight. <laughs> oh, and I should say too, we uh, if you're on Zoom, we have the um, the poetry space, which is a space on Zoom where it's like a collaborative conversation. Katie hosts it, but I'm there as the co-host every Thursday at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time. So find either Timothy Green or Katie underscore Dozier on Twitter. On Twitter. Yeah. yeah. If you're only on Twitter, it's really fun, though, to have a conversation just with a whole bunch of people talking about poetry. It's a different uh, different format that's really cool. It really is. I'd love for more people from the open lines in, in particular to get on there because I want to hear everybody's thoughts. And we're going to be talking about sonnets this upcoming week. Oh, yeah. So. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Sonnets I'm really excited. Week. That was a sonnet I just read, too. So that was themed and I didn't even know it. There you go. Perfect. Okay. Good to see you, Katie. <laughs> I'll see so you much. on Thursday. Bye. Bye. It was Katie Dozier with uh, Enthrallment is an M dash. Next, let's go to a first time caller. We have um, Christy Gledhill here with us today. Hi. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for that really great interview too with Abby. Um, I was I was hoping I live in Tacoma, so oh, I miss her. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad she's coming back. Um, 
So this is actually a poem that I, I submitted for the Poets Respond uh-huh. last a couple weeks ago, and it was um, in response to the MSU shooting at Michigan State University. And I happened to be home in Michigan at during that week, and um, several nephews on campus and other people on campus. It was just a, it hit very close to home, and mm-hmm. so this is what happened <laughs> when I. Um, during that week that everyone everything was kind of the turmoil around yeah. the shoot yeah it's tough to live through that and to have connections there for sure and and it just yeah. it comes you know it just happens so often too right that it comes close right. to home at some point inevitably yeah yeah it keeps coming mm-hmm. so i'll i'll read the poem and there's an epigraph at the beginning the title an american phenomenon msu number 67 The epigraph, mass shootings are, for the most part, an American phenomenon, and that's from Gun Violence Archive. When the shooting starts, when the calls pour in, when the cops fan out blue gunmetal gleam across campus, the scanner app the students download scares them shitless, reporting shots fired, reporting active shooter, multiple shooters, reporting OMG bombs on the loading dock, reporting death threats, reporting the smell of gunpowder in the courtyard, screaming in the cafeteria, reporting, reporting explosives in classrooms, reporting three dudes with guns in the quad, reporting, reporting, reporting the reports the shots sending a voice major, someone everyone knew from her practice room, shot singing to her to emergency surgery. Her Michigan family notified. How were they notified? Who notified them? Did she? Nine softball players stacking furniture against the door, staying put. One shot sending a cousin's fraternity brother to his altogether unexpectedly violent pre-graduation death. One asthmatic classmate left on the lawn in the chaos, in the open, in the cold, gasping. One nephew in the dark in his room for hours against the wall, texting his friends and his frantic mother, hears cops in the hall, in the room next door, in his head, echoes of his own personal senior year school shooting initiation fresh, the language, the posture, the rules, the quiet waiting to be shot, not shot, the taste, the smell fresh now, so fresh, again, The flags half-masted before the dead killer's note is found, before the body count is final. The basketball bleacher parents watching their high schoolers' games downstate all know someone, know someone who knows someone, a victim, a voice, some kid who'd survive the last school shooting only to turn around and survive this one too, a survivor, another survivor, another survivor pin for your backpack, honey. So much surviving, so many of us, we get it now. We'll just keep surviving these darn things, these daily escapes from being shot, stabbed, bombed to death, no matter what. More survivors than victims, for sure, for sure. It's a low percentage, the ones actually shot, I mean. The ones legitimately wounded, those bleeding in a way that requires professional medical attention, sutures, transfusions. Your chances are actually pretty good. Your survival is likely. You'll survive and you'll get better at this, quicker, quieter. You'll be more prepared to shelter in place. 
much better equipped to decode the scanner chatter, tougher, more resilient, more skilled at whispering active shooter into your mother's ear. Wow, yeah, powerful poem. And uh, like this similar poem uh, to Dick Westheimer's great rhythm, too, on that. There's great cadence mm-hmm. to it. Thanks for sharing that. Was it true somebody survived one shooting and then ended up at that shooting, too? Yeah, I think many wow. kids wow. on that campus did. Yeah, my yeah, my nephew is one of them. <laughs> oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it reminds me of the last train to Hiroshima, or from Hiroshima, that book about the person who survived in Hiroshima and then took the train to Nagasaki. Um, it is just heartbreaking to think of it going through that twice and then a pin, um, you know. Um, I can't help but notice on the back of your wall there, we have uh, poems, I think, posted on the wall. So <laughs> you can see that That's looks my, like the uh, yeah, structuring a manuscript yeah. going, right? It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually two of them um, up there. So, yes, thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good yeah. luck with that. It is definitely fun to have it done that way, um, having mm-hmm. it so you can see everything all at once. Very cool. It's, always, it's fun to see that in the background. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's really a pleasure, pleasure. hearing your poems and, and, uh, and, and meeting you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, Christy Gledhill with uh, An American Phenomenon, MSU number 67. Um, next, let's go to um, Janthi Rungan. Hey, Janthi. Oh, you're still muted. Let's see. I'll ask to unmute again. Hmm. It's still muted. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> um, this is okay. I, yeah, perfect. I, yeah, great to see you. So what do you have to share with us today? Okay, this is a prompt poem. It's called Mother's Anxiety as a Correlative Conjunction. Ah. And what's a correlative uh, conjunction for all those non-editors out there who might not know what it is? <laughs> I really don't correlative <laughs> conjunction. I have no idea. <laughs> it, it's, um, you know, when you have neither nor sort of uh, um, uh-huh. okay. uh, that pair, either mm-hmm. or, uh, those kinds of things. So um, it starts, her brain broke into a sweat with angst. Her adult children didn't make the omelette well. Pushing them aside, she made a delicious brunch and repeated instructions, checking and rechecking. At times, of course, uh, at times, of course, worry and tension. She argued random logic of a crashed mind. Pour coffee into milk and not the other way around. Her nerves rubbed off on anyone passing by, felt and seen by everyone. The correlative conjunction rubric was clear from afar. If the noun was singular, the verb was likewise, or a plural element used a plural verb. But up close, the proximity rules stuck to mom's kind of reasoning. The distance to the noun mattered. A sentence with a mixed bag of nouns added crystalline bizarreness 
if mother's coffee making was confusing, grammar regulations were more so, correlative conjunctions joined our words, and mom tied our bonds the same way. These, these terms came in pairs, like mother's love and ire. Whenever in doubt, we hugged her and nodded a big nod. Yes, mom, pour coffee into milk and not milk into coffee. <laughs> that is great. Very touching poem. Mother's anxiety is a correlative conjunction. Thanks so much for sharing that, Janthi. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Janthi Rangan with Mother's Anxiety as a Correlative Conjunction. Um, next up, we have Vishwajit Mishra. Hi, Tim. Hello, I see. It's very dark where you are. Let's see the view. Or unless either that or you're in the Matrix. Oh, <laughs> I see me. I'm trying out my new office. We just have the basement done. <laughs> well, all we, see, all we see are like green lines. So I think something, maybe the... Is the calf on a camera, maybe, or something? I'm not sure. Okay. Oh, I think something else happened. Oh, there we go. No, I'm turning back to my laptop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's great now. So what do you have to share with us tonight? Oh, I've got uh, a prompt poem. Mm -hmm. And before that, let me empathize with you with all that snowfall you got. We got it just two days before. You. Oh, really? Where where are you? Where where are you lived? I can't remember. Calgary. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. a big storm. I mean, it was the best. It was the biggest storm here since 1989. Yeah, I and read so all that. The neighbors, you know, it was very communal though, because all the neighbors were out trying to shovel their driveway. We can like see each other and talk, but we can't even like get to each other. We're just like, hey, over there. <laughs> and uh, eventually, oh, you know, after much much time, whoever had the shortest driveway won, and it was not me. <laughs> so yeah. no, I was surprised, but I read it that you. You guys are going to get like three, four feet of snow. Yeah, it was 51 inches we got. And now that there's another foot on the way tomorrow night, too. So on top of the, you know, and I think everybody's back is broken. And maybe we'll just give up and, and just wait till it melts, I think, this time. <laughs> maybe California is not a better alternative for us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's hear this poem. This okay. is the is an article. Yeah. And why did you pick the, why did you pick this? Or I don't know for... I'm equally surprised why this thing came of all uh, words like the. <laughs> I, I don't know how it came. And I was wondering what is the emotion in the. So it's just first couple of lines that came to me, then I started. It, it's actually started with the Himalayas, to be, to be honest. <laughs> okay, let's and see. I started, okay, I remember from when we were in the school. So mm -hmm. that's what the poem is. The, the is an article. Did I miss a piece from the definition? Well, I don't want to give it away right at the start. It'll kill the poem I'm going to write. Let's shred it apart to see what is its real texture. Is there an emotion that might have prompted a poem out of skew? I learned in school to say the Himalayas, and we wondered, were we not taught that proper nouns do not use articles? What would the kids know about stacking a name over others? Or could I use the before my name without failing the language class? Then when we grew, the list kept growing. A new motion was set in place of grading. 
and the R that comes with the D for the graded, the exclusivity, the incomparability, the air lifting the skin, that reef cages struggle to match, and the heart is helpless to keep down, the attainment of the, the shin, the halo of the Everest. It must be pretty cool on top, and the warmth of the article only definite. Now that's excellent. I would also give the note, it seems the Everest is grammatically incorrect. Or maybe it needs to be in a few more feet. (laughs) (laughs) I love the note. Thanks for sharing that, as always. Um, Hey, Tim, uh, there's one thing I wanted to tell you. Uh Uh, I know we have a lot of callers today. Mm -hmm. I had sent a a prompt poem to you last week. It's a very short poem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't have to read it if you can snake it anytime if you have time. It's a very short one-quarter page poem. Let's just do uh, it right now. Why not? Why don't you pull it up? Because... if it is short and yeah, very uh, short. Yeah, let's it, do it. It was actually the reason I'm you know why I'm asking because it was a response to a poem that came on rattle. Uh-huh. And I've never written something like that. It's a response to T.R. Hummer's poem Search. Ah, in the same format too, yeah. <laughs> Which all of our proofreaders thought was a typo. They were like, I don't think this is supposed to look like this, Tim. And I was like, Yeah, actually it does. His whole his next book is gonna be all shaped like this. So here we go. This is a... Uh, uh, cascade. cascade. Yeah. yeah. Cascade. The surge came to me sitting on the bed, cascading cheerless, blowing me away to the rocking chair by the window. The verses echoing back on the quietness of the late winter evening. Yet, I could not figure out the direction. Is it not supposed to be down? But something seemed welling up and kept moving, moving, slipping through the pores. Contagion may work both ways. Maybe the terrace will keep moving until it finds the poet on a return surge. I agree. Oh, very cool. Yeah, prompt poem to that surge by uh, by T.R. Hummer. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Bishwajit. Uh, thank you. Have a good night. Yep, you too. Yeah, that was Cascade. Uh, another <laughs> poem that we missed last week, I guess. A few more poets here. Mark Grinier is up next. Hi, Tim. I've got, uh, don't have a prompt poem, but uh, uh, I, listening to uh, the interview today, it, it uh, reminded me of my own childhood. Ah. This poem is called Military Brats. Interesting. Let me, before you, how many uh, places did you stay? Did you live? Do you remember? Oh, God, I don't know. A dozen, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we moved every two or three years, it seems. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is called Military Brats. We called ourselves that with a sense of pride and difference. Our dads, our moms, dutiful in uniforms, protected us all, all over the world. Fighting the Cold War year after year, following orders from place to place, breaking the bonds between us and our friends, new friends we'd make at each new duty station, then leave too soon as orders changed and new assignments came to take us away from what we knew, from everything, everyone but our brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, serving the national need for strength, the projection of power and presence, opposing the Reds, the communist threat against our homeland, our people, and all we loved, or so we were taught, at family meals and schools and churches, by all the news that was fit to print or show on TV screens or in newsreel shorts, 
that defined our time as once again we became strangers, trying to find new friends. We abandoned each new world we knew for another new scene to learn and live within, despite our fears and isolation, finding new sources of strength, new knowledge to be gained from our new place, our fears and sense of pride and the isolation of families living out front amid too few friends, too many newfound foes. Oh, very interesting poem. Thanks for sharing that. Definitely uh, appropriate for this week. Okay, I thought it fit. Yeah, definitely did. Thanks, Mark. That was great. Okay, bye. Bye. And, uh, and yeah, Christy suggests submit it to Collateral, which is a good point. Um, let's go. We have... I will try to try to do that. <laughs> yeah. We have uh, a couple of people left. I think three left. Uh, Brian O'Sullivan is next. Hello. Hey, Brian. How you doing this week? From the prompt, yeah. So, what'd you come up with? Um, it's more called hyphen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hyphen death themed improv. That's just asking for trouble, I thought. Where the hand scrawled Halloweeny flyer, half buried on the arts and humanities building bulletin board, between news of the writerthon and dance night, trapped my bedraggled eyes. I stopped trudging towards my little office in the writing center with Bonnie's cart coffee in hand, laptop bag straps slipping down my arm, snow stuck to my caribou coat. I imagined improv Armageddon. Someone yells out heart attack to a committed actor who will never block. So the actor yes ands with a room full of strokes. On the flyer, the hyphen like dread now loomed larger, a memento mori hooking death to life as theme to tragedy or any tale. I sipped my loamy coffee and walked on, and I spent the rest of the day trying not to remember that life is a death-themed improv. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, good use of that metaphor hyphen, Brian O'Sullivan. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yep, take care. Yeah, Brian O'Sullivan with uh, hyphen. And uh, Mary Lisa Dodominesis. I have to say it faster, but I'm getting there. <laughs> hey, Mary Lisa, how are you doing tonight? Hi, how's it going? Great. It's um, Dodominesis. Dominicious. Okay. There you go. You got okay. it. Great. <laughs> I just have to, I have to not you think know. about it, though. It has to enter my muscle memory so I can, <laughs> yeah. So what we do you got have all to share? the time in the world all the time. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so what do you have for us tonight? So I have a poem called Drawing an Equation. It was first published in my chapbook, oh, Almost cool. All Red. Mm-hmm. It was um, nominated for a push cart, but that was like a really long time ago. Um the thing I want to say about this poem is funny. It was written like 20 years ago. It's still in response to one of the prompts because it's a um, a, a, a child, a pivotal childhood moment. Mm. I've been mm-hmm. writing down your prompts. So the big thing about this is in October, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I reread this poem and I was like, oh my gosh, my whole life now makes so much more sense. And this poem just, it, It's like, in a nutshell, how did I not see it? So I'm going to shut up and read now. Okay, let's hear it. It's called Drawing an Equation. And so it begins in kindergarten when she tells us to color the grass in. After all day waiting a lifetime for my turn, sick to death of math and the repetitious calculation of goldfish units per set, drudgingly penciling four, 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 for how many perfect triangle pieces of pie inside the circle. The whole time, trying to sit completely still and silent, listening for my name. This is when my name is called, finally, 
Finally, something begins. Joy. I have permission to abandon the beige chair I cannot stand sitting down in. It's my turn to join them, to color the grass in, to draw on the brown paper whole class mural in a space reserved strictly for me and my version of landscape. I am five and I know things. I know things I don't know I know and make the beige chair disappear. I show what exactly I see. And so when the crayon in my hand strikes paper, the paper so clearly becomes a field, I swear the mural disappears. The walls burst into blue air. The day is a color. The clock is a sun. It is summer. And I am under a huge weeping tree painting. I am pouring all of me into the grass. I am coloring in until the teacher, rushing in horror, plucks the giant green crayon from my hand loudly with an ug and an urgent shove to sit back down. I don't understand. What am I, blind? I am unable to find the ruin I have created. I must be stupid to be so baffled about why there are no buts about it, but I must sit down right now to salvage the landscape. Someone with more sense must scribble quickly to cover my disaster, to have the mural hang on display each blade of grass must face in only one direction. From end to end, the grass must blend. Each patch must lie down on its side and pretend to sleep. And I must sit down without another word about it. I must put my head in my arms on the desk and allow and accept, then forget this moment. I put my head where my heart belongs for the sake of her art. I can't help but see red. If I breathe, I will cry, but I cannot cry for if I do, it will be to insist on grass preservation, the manifestation of each individual's vision of what grass is. And I may not speak or cry or sing to defend my grass from its destruction. I must sit down without one passionate sound or opinion. I must sit down. I must put my head in the dark of my arms on the desk and draw my joy back in to wrestle the severe spirit of vengeance, wholly entering my half-asleep dream. I won't say what I see, but briefly infected, I sense something fierce and wicked and frightening inside me. And so where one thing ends, another begins. Oh, very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mary Lisa. It's so fascinating the way that uh, poems know more than we do, don't they? I mean, <laughs> that's just how it works. Way more. And you know what? I just remembered reading this. Um, this is the one that Maria Maziotti chose. For oh. It was a finalist. So, yeah. Oh, and you just, had, you just had the reading. So, yeah. Yeah. Perfect tie-in. Yeah. That. Drawing an equation. That. Yeah. And that's the Patterson Prize, which is what um, you know, Maria just says so much. And that Patterson... A literary review, um, you know, and, and, and you know, she's from New Jersey, but then goes up to SUNY Binghamton, um, you know, constantly to teach there and, and does so much in both communities. She's a great, great person. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Great to read that poem. Thank you for the time. Yep. Thanks, Mary Lisa. All right. And that was uh, Drawing an Equation. <clears throat> um, let's see. We have another first time caller. There's actually two people left still. So Jane um, per, um, Pirto is next. Yep, thanks, Mary Lisa. Oh, are you there, Jane? I'm here. There you are. Hello. Hello. I think I hear myself in the background, so you're going to have to mute uh, your, or stop your other stream and just watch through Zoom. 
I am. I am. A, oh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 that's okay. I, I, I got your note after I submitted a, a poem about the news. Uh-huh. And I, I had a chorus rehearsal tonight here in Columbus, Ohio. So I came in late. So I don't even know what this is all about. So <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I, I, I've been a poet for a long time. So maybe I'll come next, next week at 932. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I, ha- I have I have the poem that I. Yeah. Why don't you wrote. go ahead? Why don't you share a poem? This is the open lines at the end. So the show actually starts at uh, eight p.m. But there's open lines afterward. Um, and let me find. Okay. Uh... I sub- I submitted this poem. My name is Jane Pierto, mm-hmm. and um, it's called "No Catharsis Possible." <clears throat> Great. And and tell us what it's about as I pull it up. What was it's it? about the um, Murdoch trial. Oh, I remember this because I've never heard about it. So explain for everybody who doesn't know what that trial is because I had to look it up. It's not something I, I heard about. You're kidding. No, I, I don't. I um I only read the news when people write poems about them. <laughs> so I don't oh watch my TV. Goodness. I well, don't this really is, go to see it or anything. This yeah. is the case of the century. And um, wow. it is in South Carolina. And he's uh, it, it, it's too much to tell. Watch the, you watch Netflix? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, they've got a new uh, thing on Netflix about it, right? Uh, a three thing. Uh, uh, he's accused of murdering his son and his wife. He's also a major thief. He's a from a very prominent family. It's very much too much to tell. Mm-hmm. And I'm I I think you need to look it up because it's really pretty current in the when all five networks on 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 Thursday mm-hmm. do not broadcast any news at all, but stream the trial wow that's a pretty big story timothy and so mm-hmm. i'm calling you out on it. <laughs> okay well i'll pay more attention to the news i think okay let's hear All this right. poem no uh, catharsis possible right this is uh this is a poem uh with seven syllables per line <clears throat> even though we know what he's done what he is accused of The prosecutor's contempt for him made me feel sorry for him having to endure this scorn on a public stand. Though car and phone data show his steps, his drives, his pauses, although he agrees that he is contemptible, guilty of theft, blatant malfeasance, the sound of his sobs, his throat clearings, apricot nimbus of hair, skin, Ears, pink forehead, bushy brows, grimaces, tears, choruses, classic pity. I can see how victims trust forswore critical judgment with their sarcastic replays, condescending talking heads on law and crime, court TV, Banfield, CNN, Abrams, MSNBC, YouTube, CNN, ABC, Mule, I mute, fear a suicide. How pill payments, opioids, paranoia, hate of sled, springs boat wreck with a girl dead, hired gun for a self-kill, parent dementia and death, how the shed, truck, labs, Chickens, missing 300 blackout, golf cart, pawpaws, brains blasted, pellets in Maggie's face, breast, enact what Aristotle called our pity and our fear. 
how this is not theater, screen, poem, novel, no cleansing here, no purification. Yeah, that was excellent. I remember reading that uh, Friday night or Saturday morning and, and really wishing I'd followed the trial because it sounds really interesting, especially that, that witness stand thing. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Very interesting. You're welcome. Yeah, and so if you want to share, that's Jane Pirito, or Pirto with a no catharsis Pirto, possible. Pirto, Pirto. Pirto. And uh, yeah, so we do this every Monday and the open lines are always at the same time. So join us anytime you got a new poem to share. Thank you. Yep, thank you. All right, and we have one more caller left. Lucy Chow is here uh, from China. Let's see if we can get Lucy on the line. Hi, Tim. Hey, Lucy. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing right, and I hope um, I have changed to another device, and I hope this this time the connection would be better. It sounds really good, actually, and you're, you have four bars on your little uh, Zoom thing, so it sounds great. Uh, hopefully it'll work and you can stick with this whole time because your poems are wonderful. So what do you have for us this week? Actually, I did a prompt poem, but mm-hmm. I did not stick very strictly to uh, the grammar term. Actually, I sent a poem called Passion as Pictogram, and pictogram is not um, um, technically a grammatical term, but it's a linguistic term. But it's interesting to see how um, this um, prompt about um, an emotion actually led me to write an impersonal poem. It's interesting. Yeah, that is. And it it has um, an epigraph from Emerson. Oh, I'll read it. Yeah, go ahead. Passion as pictogram. Words are signs of natural facts. Particular natural facts are symbols of particular spiritual facts. Nature is the symbol of spirit. Will that which we call a passion flower blossom as much flame by any other name? The passion said the Spanish, can be read clearly, beautifully in this vine, pagan-born, but a Christian sign. Behold its symbols of spiritual facts, the holy lands of leaf tips, the tendrils, wicked whips. Witness Peter and Judas excluded from the ten faithful apostles, its ten petals and sepals, and those innumerable whirling rays each crown of thorns, each flower suffering afresh that sad, sad hour, its ovary, small, still ripening womb in the very shape of the Holy Grail, beneath three six stigmas, three nails, nailing five anthers, Christ five wounds, four by the nails, one by the lands, part the blue of heavenly expanse. The exactness of the flower's own clock, each one blossoming three days, years of the ministry. Still are various readings. Rologia, Tokaiso, it's blue the color of Krishna's aura, other than this one name, Passiflora. Paradolia is God's image everywhere. His sacred heart in leaves of yam. Each facade a pictogram of the pilgrims yearning passionately to translate the word, ever undeterred by myriad mazy meanings of the world, which the Ansifera hummingbird taps into with its sword, while the passion 
while the passion vine makes its own signs of fear, dark against the sky, wings of the heliconius butterfly, out of the holy lances and the slim whips swirling to grasp new territories with the zeal of missionaries. Yeah, excellent, Lucy. Thanks so much for sharing that. Beautiful as always. I love that line, especially, um, um, where was it, the, the exactness of the flower's own clock. Um, yeah, great stuff as always. That was um, Passion as Pictogram by Lucy Chow. And Lucy, the connection was great this time. So whoever you're doing it, like stick, stick with this device and, and we'll be able to hear you okay. every time. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yep, thanks. Have a good day. Have a good night, Tom. Tim, bye. Bye. That was Lucy Chow uh, with Passion as Pictogram. And that is it for the Zoom. Let's um, see if we have a few to read that are short. Um, <clears throat> um, let's see. Well, Nivedita, let's see. Can we get Nivedita's in? She sent a video. Try to put that. I'll download that, and then we'll take a look at another poet. Um, Susan Talley has a haiku here. I'll just read Susan Talley's haiku. Um, so I don't show her email address, but uh, here it is. Haiku. This is Susan Talley. Pine trees in the breeze, whispers sifting through nettles. Ocean wave to the shore. Oh, very cool. Thanks. That was Susan Talley with a haiku. Um, and Andrea Dobrika is here as well with a poem. Um, and she says, if there's any time, it's my attempt at the prompt. The idea was to compare love to an apostrophe and its three uses to indicate possession, to mark missing letters, digits in a contraction, and to mark plurals. I started with the concept in mind, but instead of love as an apostrophe, the poem compares a failed relationship to an apostrophe. So very interesting. And uh, let me click the. So here is um, Andrea Dobrika's Defined by Omission. Defined by omission. We did not intend to define love as an apostrophe, prone to possession, one's hunger of control, perfect overlap over another's abundance of survivors. Blinded by plurals, our own cells relinquished to melding embraces. We elevated this comma to proof of connection. Confounded contraction, we suddenly woke up into a haze of missing letters and intentions. I can't, we shouldn't. So we didn't. Love just marked us by omission. Ah, very cool. Defined by omission by Andrea Dobrika. Thanks for sharing that, Andrea. Let me, um, um, let's see. Are there anyone else? There's a bunch of them. Um, let's see what time. I'll do, I'll do a couple more. So here's J.B. Penname, the uh, mysterious, uh, poet who does not want to be revealed, um, and is a surprisingly good poet, too. Hope is an oxymoron. So let's see JB pen name. Let's see what JB's got for us today. Hope is an oxymoron, but it is not a puffer fish, not a wormhole from Monday to Friday, or a river made of many smaller, growing and shrinking rivers, not hope bubbling up from the ocean, deep ocean like cola, or sitting by the office window intently watching the grass grow. Certainly not hope. The fish that remembers the day it learned to think like a fish, learned to breathe violence. Every fish inherits a history of violence. The bongos of a past life. Is that hope chewing on a plastic spoon and waiting for this war to end and the next war to end? Hope chanting, buy it, in the aisles of the target as the body rejects itself. 
Hope wouldn't play board games and wonder how people came together before there were board games. There goes Hope climbing over the war memorial at the elementary school, waiting for its parents to come pick it up. But it's not the sound of Hope whirring as we turn the corner, just the wheels grinding. So another excellent poem by J.B. Penname, whoever you are. Um, and we actually, I was talking to somebody about that, and they think J.B. Penname might be uh, Billy Collins, but I don't know about that. Great, great poet, though. All, always good poems by J.B. Um, let's see. I think... Okay, so there's one more. Here's a, There's a poem to Dash the Poem by uh, Kimberly McNeil. And so here is this. She starts out uh, with a photo. I think this is her, Kimberly, and her son. So let's take a peek at this photo first. And then here is Kimberly's poem. And, and they're, uh, you know, mother and son standing by a bridge um, in a black and white photo for those just watching or just listening at home, I should say. And here's the poem. Dash the poem. My son died. I was devastated by the colossal waste that was his mind, that rare, non-judgmental, creative kind free of stereotypes and completely blind to patriarchal rules which he defined as the compulsions of those in power dash was unaffected by the normal things that make kids cry a soaring visionary bravely asking why common sense would doubt his existence i think we uh i think that's a revision of a poem we did on critique of the week if i remember right i like this version thanks so much for sharing this um and she says, uh, my son disappeared. His body was never identified. And the photo, we'll go back to that, was a photo of me and Dash. Burnside Bridge, Antietam, 2007, January 8th. And so that was Kimberly McNeil. Really touching, sad poem. Uh, really well done, too, Kimberly. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. And that is going to wrap up the show for today, I believe. Yes, it will. So, um, next week's prompt on the Rattlecast is going to be... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I'm a little tired, sorry. The next, uh, the Saiku. We have to do the Saiku. And I did. I screeched out a Saiku. The funny thing is, usually I write the Saiku in bed the night before. I, like, read a little science article and then, um, you know, think about it for a while. And then... Um, and then write the Saiku and fall asleep, and I remember it in the morning, which is always a surprise to me. But this morning I woke up, and I could not remember the Saiku that I'd written before falling asleep last night. So I had to write a whole new Saiku, which is one of the reasons why I didn't have a prompt poem. Um, but this is this article here, which um, – um, and now that they have um, – now that every website's built for smartphones, they have huge text. It's hard to get the whole thing in here. But you can see the picture anyway. This picture is from the James Webb Telescope. And um, this week, I think it was, I think it made pretty major news um, that the Webb Telescope spots super old, massive galaxies that shouldn't exist. And so, what it is is they looked at this dark space. Where was it by? Um, was it by the Big Dipper or something like that? They looked at this space that was pretty dark in the sky with a new, amazing technology, the Webb Telescope, and they found these fuzzy little dots that were way brighter than they should be, and they were. Um, only, you know, because you can judge how old something is by the distance the light takes and the redshift, and etc. Only 500 to 7 million years after the Big Bang, or more than 13 years ago from now. So that's, this, that's how old these two galaxies are that they see in the Webb Telescope. And yet the galaxies um, are way too big and too massive to make sense with the standard model, which is the Lambda Cold Dark Matter model, um, which I've always, I don't know, I have my own theories, which I um, like to see that overturned because it's kind of fun. 
Um, but anyway, that was my psyku or my science story, which inspired this haiku um, based on these um, galaxies that are actually um, much bigger than they should be for how old they are. Um, they should be these like young little galaxies. But anyway, here's the psyku. With each step imperceptibly closer, distant light. With each step imperceptibly closer, distant light. So that is the psyku for today, and that is the show for today. Now finally it's time. I've been almost accidentally saying this prompt for, for <laughs> like three times today. Uh, next week's prompt is going to be this. Um, write a poem about a time you faced a moral dilemma. And so, of course, Abby Murray, the whole book is about being a, a pacifist. Um, Helen Farewell, which we talked about today with Abby, is about being a pacifist while married to a soldier. And so that's kind of a moral dilemma there. And uh, so that inspired this prompt right about a time you faced a moral dilemma. That is the prompt for this week. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, James Davis May. Um, James Davis, he's been a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize, just a brilliant writer. Um, he had that poem right before Christmas about um, about It's a Wonderful Life from Poet Spawn, if you remember that. We published him several times. He has a new book out that's just getting rave reviews, Unusually Grand Ideas. And that's that beautiful cover there with the balloons, too. That's James Davis May. He's been recommended as a guest for a long time, so it's cool to see him um, have a new book come out just now. That's going to be Rattlecast number 184. James Davis May, Monday, March 6th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Uh, goodbye.